This is an Odyssey original. This is War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. President Biden and his fellow NATO leaders made it clear today in Brussels the alliance was unified in the face of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. No small feat. The president and his counterparts kept everything together in lockstep against Russia's aggression. We'll take a closer look at how they've done it and what's next in standing up to Vladimir Putin. We'll also go back to Ukraine and talk with a man in Kiev whose family was dealing with a COVID outbreak when the war got started. Since then, medicine and medical care have become hard to find. The Biden administration has put together a team of experts and military personnel to come up with scenarios and responses if Russian troops were to use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine. What would NATO's response be? And would the use of chemical weapons constitute a new red line? We start with NATO, an alliance that has not always been the most unified group, but that has changed dramatically in the past month or so since Russia invaded Ukraine. With us is Robert Sanders, retired Navy JAG Corps captain and chair of national security at the Henry Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences at the University of New Haven. Thanks for being with us. So NATO is saying they're prepared to do something if Russia uses weapons of mass destruction, like a a chemical weapon or even a tactical nuclear weapon. What exactly would that something be? Well, there's a range of activities that could happen from uh, boots on the ground to uh, asymmetric strikes to strikes with uh, weapons, uh, standoff weapons uh, like cruise missiles um, to to take them out. Um, The idea of NATO, U.S., uh, our allies, boots on the ground, of course, is the last, the last ditch reserve. Um, and that would be the one thing that NATO and the United States in particular would also try to avoid. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I've said this in the past, it's, it's how do you take your poison here? It's poison at the beginning, poison in the middle, or poison at the end. It's all ugly. It's all nasty. And uh, if you want to stop a threat like this, you may have to actually meet the threat with the force that the threat presents. It's a delicate balance for obvious reasons. There is some worry that with things going so bad for Vladimir Putin that he's going to think that he has to do one of these things because it's the uh, it's the animal backed into a corner kind of scenario. Well, it is. Um, you know, I. I my, my doctor's in law policy. I won't do the psychology issue, um, anal analysis of him. But the, the aspect of national security, you have a political end state that you're trying to achieve. And one of the mechanisms you can use to achieve it is the M in what we call DIMEFIL, D-I-M-E-F-I-L, diplomacy, information, military, economics, finance, intelligence and law, legal, law enforcement. Those are the instruments of national power. Those are what nations use in order to affect their power and policies around the world. Putin's political end state is uh, rebuilding what had been the Soviet empire and rebuilding that buffer that used to exist between that Western NATO and his Eastern communist Russia. Uh, he, he couldn't get it through the D. Uh, he, he had no chance through the I. Uh, economically, he was not strong enough. Financially, he was not strong enough. His intelligence apparatus 
KGB days are over. Uh, and law, he's not China in the South China Sea. He resorted to the M. And his resort, retort to the M, has put us where we are today. Uh, what do we do with that? We have that same set of dime fill as potential ways to respond. Uh, we started with the E and the F. We supported the Ukrainian M. And I can't tell you exactly what's next, but all those other dynamics, including the diplomacy one, which is happening right now with President Biden in Europe, are all on the table. But let me ask you something. Didn't a former occupant of the White House once draw a red line in the sand uh, that if crossed, and I'm talking, I think, about uh, Syria, that if, uh, if that line were crossed, the U.S. would react, the line was crossed, and we didn't? Right. Uh, a, a, a bad scenario. Uh, I wish we had reacted. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen lots of dead Russians and Syrian uh, troops at that point in that time, uh, but we did, it didn't happen. So what are we doing now? Well, we're doing a lot of that I, the information stuff is being put out so the rest of the world has a clearer picture of what this looks like. Uh, we're doing a lot of the, the other I, gathering the information intel to pass on to our allies and folks who could act. We're not telling everybody in the world what every aspect of every red line is. So that if in fact, we have an agreement with our NATO allies on what red lines look like, that we can keep secret, um, that the Russians can't figure out and the Russians move into that area, we can react in a number of ways without being having to telegraph what we do or without having foreshadowed what we're gonna do. Robert Sanders there, retired Navy JAG Corps captain and chair of national security, Henry Lee College Criminal Justice at the uh, University of New Haven. We've been hearing every day from people in Ukraine sharing their experiences dealing with the war. Today, it's Ivan. He lives in the capital of Kiev with his mom, his stepdad, and the family. Just before the war started, Ivan's stepdad was in the hospital with COVID and sent home. This while his mom was having a hard time getting over her own case of the virus. Ivan is with us now. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with us uh, after facing one problem after another. First, that family struggle with uh, COVID, and now, of course, a war with Russia. Tell us how you and your family are coping. Hi, Mike, Charles. Uh, happy to be here. Um, that's a good question. Yes, uh, one event after another. Uh, it's been tough. Uh, indeed, it's been 30 days of this uh, war, this aggression. And um, I think at this point of time, some of us, um, you know, kind of uh, developed a, it's not correct to connect with this, but like a Stockholm syndrome, like you're getting used to the horror. It's, it's, it's horrible to say, but mm. you're somehow getting used to it, right? Because it became part of our daily life. And I think it's slightly maybe easier for us to speak about this right now even like comparing to three weeks ago when we were just in shock because nobody really expected to just wake up like exactly 30 days ago or like four weeks ago we woken up with you know missiles being sent over the city and you just you wake up from an explosion you don't understand what's going on and then you see on the news and the war started and you just don't believe in it that in this century, in this time, that something like this can happen. And especially from the neighbors where, um, like historically, uh, due to the us being part of the USSR, many of us have connections, like family connections, right? Like we are intertwined 
uh, as nations, even though we're different nations, we're intertwined. And then you get like things like this, and then you learn of what Russian thinks of us. And it's just like the lies that's being told on their part. Like, yeah. And um, it's tough uh, because, you know, we are in Kiev. Like, it depends on where you are in Ukraine. But uh, every day you, you watch this horrific... Um, stories and footages from Mariupol or Kharkov of uh, bombing and, you know, children being killed and houses being shot at. It's like, and you don't know what's going to happen to you. And pretty much you go to sleep. Like, I will tell you how we sleep. Like, when you go to sleep, you, you, I have like an emergency bag next to me. I have a bottle of water. I have like, what I have in my emergency bag? I have um, like my passport, some cash, uh, sneakers, <laughs> you know, to go buy granola bar, flashlight, knife, like, you know, things that you need in case, you know, you will be um, um, like bombed and you, you will not have time to uh, evacuate and you will be just left here, like under, covered under ruins. And then we have like emergency bags that, um, you would take with yourself if you have to evacuate and you pretty much you go to bed packing and then you wake up happy that you are alive uh and then you uh, unpack some of the things and then you go by it's it's a it's a real tragical story how most of people live nowadays how here old, those who how choose old, to say ivan how, how curious how old are you 38 38 okay and what do you do uh, I work in IT. I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm leading global delivery, global development uh, in one of the companies. You were mentioning earlier how many people have connections, you know, to Russia. Is that the same with your family? I mean, do you have family and friends on the other side of this? Uh, I have some, I have some uh, family connections, but we've stopped talking to them since 2014. You know, when the actual uh, Russian aggression has started, it didn't just start it a month ago. It started eight years ago. Um, and they didn't believe as to what we were saying at that point of time. So our connections were lost. And we, I do have some of my Russian friends um, uh, in Russia. And some of them stayed there and they understand what's going on, but they are keeping silent. I do have a very good, I have very two good friends who are Russians and who've been living in Ukraine and who chose to leave Ukraine immediately because they didn't know how it will affect them. And they're right now staying in other countries and they're not returning to Russia. Uh, and then I do have some people um, in Russia, like they are not friends, they're like acquaintances and they don't believe as to what we're saying. So pretty much you don't talk to them. How do you think this is all going to end? <laughs> I hope uh, and pray that Ukraine is going to win. Your Russian friends, I just want to come back to that for a second. The ones who mm -hmm. are staying silent, uh, do you blame them for that? Or do you understand because bad things could happen to them? Or do you think everybody over there who can speak out should be speaking out because they're one of the few, apparently, that know what's actually going on? Uh, it's a tough question. Obviously, we as Ukrainians would like every single person who is able to stood up, stood up for their uh, opinion, because this is what we've done in Ukraine. This is now a third time that we're doing this. Um, now, the first two cases of our revolutions were interior, interior conflicts, right? But we always chose to stand up for our rights. Uh, now, um, like we don't see how this is happening in Russia, and they pretty much. Um, 
they get used to the regime that they're living in. So it's their personal choice. Do I blame them? Well, it's their personal choice. Um, and yes, I would love them to stand up and, you know, um, pretty much say, like go into the um, meetings, protests and saying stop to this. Uh, will this be effective? Yes, if this will be like a complete revolution, like you would have, uh, let's say, um, in France, uh, then uh, yeah, it could work. Would that work in the real scenario that the regime that they're all being, let's say, uh, brainwashed with? I don't know. Like, it's hard to say. I'm not living there. I've seen on the news just like what they saw about us. We saw a picture about them. Um, I do understand that they are brainwashed, but they also fear. There's lots of fear as to what's going to happen to them because they do have a totalitarian regime. So I'm not there to blame or judge them. You know, Ivan, we, we started talking about the fact that as the war began, your family was dealing with, with COVID. And until the war began, the world was pretty much preoccupied <laughs> with COVID and the, COVID, yes. yeah, and, the, and the pandemic. Just briefly tell us, how did, how did you guys deal with, with that? And then when the war came along, uh, the, the sort of shock of that on top of having to deal with recuperating from COVID? Well, you know that human body gets used to activate their, you know, immense power to recuperate and uh, survive in the worst uh, scenarios. So I would tell you that nobody speaks of COVID here anymore. And uh, I, I, I know of extremely rare, rare cases where I heard of somebody getting sick with COVID. It sounds like we don't even hear of statistics, but obviously nobody's gonna be able to pretty much, um, you know, get a COVID test right now. But uh, overall, you don't hear of people getting super sick uh, right now because they are probably scared and their their bodies are uh, activated for survival mode right now so you know uh, COVID is getting killed by our immune system i would say maybe um but uh, yeah for me it is um like yeah we got COVID just before the war and we um it was really hard in terms of like my stepdad was still feeling very very sick and it was hard for him to breathe because like 55 percent of his lungs were affected and he had a pneumonia and so on so it's uh it was hard, um, but we, we had to do what we had to do. You had to survive. Like, this is a case of survival. And uh, first days, we were like, okay, what do we have to pack? What do we need to buy? Where do we need to go? Uh, what can we do? You know, you're like, your, your brain is intensively working in a survival mode. Uh, and hence, I guess, your body is also working through, you know, um, getting quickly into shape. And how are mom and, and stepdad doing now? Uh, much better. I would say uh, COVID-wise, we forgot what COVID was. And, you know, nobody speak of this post-COVID syndrome, like of us being tired and, and you know, that, the usual stuff that you have because uh, you're tired of the intense situation, psychological, that you're in and the deprived sleep that you have. Because just imagine when on average per day you would have from, I don't know, from like five to ten air sirens going off. And you are just waiting and waiting for not knowing what's going to happen next. And then you hear an explosion and then you're like, okay, this is not next to me. So uh, you're focused on different things right now.
Ivan, thank you for talking to us. Uh, our best to you there and the family. Ivan lives in Kiev with his mom, uh, stepdad, and the rest of the family. Uh, Ivan, thank you again. The White House reportedly has a team in place that's going through the scenarios in case Russia drops a bomb on Ukraine, a nuclear bomb, or uses chemical or biological weapons. Uh, New York Times says the team's also examining the possibility of the war spreading to countries uh, that neighbor Ukraine, whether that's uh, purposefully or through some kind of military mistake. How could these scenarios play out? John Tierney is executive director at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. He is a former Massachusetts congressman who served on the House Intelligence Committee. Thanks for being with us. Uh, it's almost hard to believe that we're even having this discussion that Russia in the year 2022 would even think about using a tactical nuclear weapon. Well, it, it is unbelievable in a sense. And, and perhaps one of the problems is that people have put it out of their minds for too long. And one of the reasons why we haven't been able to reduce the number of nuclear weapons to the extent that we all should have by, by this point in time, nobody believed that any responsible person would come to a point where they would start making threats uh, and might meaningfully be willing to act on those threats. The biggest danger that people have seen in the last couple of decades have been the, the issue of miscalculation of a stake. Uh, and those two things still ride very heavily in this scenario. They're probably heightened by the fact that once somebody starts threatening uh, that they may use them, and you're in the middle of a conflict where a fog of war could create any kind of situation, it heightens the chances for a mistake or miscalculation uh, to lead, and one act leads to another, and the escalation could get out of control, and I think that's everybody's concern. There's something that we talked about on the show here before about that idea of um, deterrence, how it used to be, you know, we're not going to get into a shooting war because we both got nukes, so nobody fired anybody and just uh, let's all let cooler heads prevail. But Putin's kind of flipped it and he's using it as a shield. He goes, I've got nukes, so I'm going to do what I want with Ukraine. And uh, you guys all sit in your borders because, again, I've got nukes. He's, he's changed the whole scenario here. Right. He's sort of blackmailing everybody, at least threatening that if they ratchet this up to a point where he feels that the sovereignty uh, of Russia is being threatened, uh, that uh, this existential threat might lead him to take that action. So yeah, he's he's turned it around on that basis. It certainly has never been a deterrent from conventional wars. There's any number of conventional wars that have taken place regionally and, and locally in, in the last several decades on that. But uh, I think he's the first to, to use it in this sense. Uh, and it should be disturbing to everybody that uh, somebody uh, that had between the United States and Russia, 93% of all the nuclear weapons in the world are, are controlled. And it should bother us a great deal that, that he would make this kind of a threat. I was listening earlier today to a uh, BBC report, and they were talking about how is it that they were talking about the UK in specific, that their intelligence community so got Vladimir Putin, who has been in power now, what, in one form or another, about 20 years, how they got him so wrong, how they they didn't understand what he was fully capable of clearly doing. So let me pose that same question to you. You were on the House Intelligence Committee, and, and you certainly know how uh, the intelligence community operates in this country. How did we, after 20 years of dealing with Vladimir Putin, we thought he wouldn't actually invade. We thought it was a bluff. Clearly it wasn't. Uh, we thought he wouldn't uh, bomb and, and, and pulverize cities. Clearly he has. Why didn't we anticipate what he's really like? 
Well, I'm not sure that we didn't anticipate what he was really like over the years. Um, you know, he's, he's been a changing item, I think, in many respects, and the situation uh, has changed, in, including COVID, which isolated him considerably, uh, and I think has led to some changes in his attitude and his, his demeanor, as well as his, his conduct. But over the years, I don't think there was any mistaking, at least with the intelligence uh, that we've all seen, that he was a, a bad guy and a bad actor. Uh, but nobody thought that, that he would go to the extent of using a nuclear weapon or biochemical weapon of any sort, and, and we're still not sure that he would. No, but that, but that's, but that is exactly my, is but, enough of a problem. That, yeah, but that's exactly you know, we, my point, John. Yeah, that's, well, but my, my point is that nobody thought he would do a whole bunch of things that he's now doing, and we don't know yet. Hopefully, he won't go that next step, but he's already done a whole bunch of stuff that people said, well, we don't think he's going to really do. He's a bad guy, but he's not that bad. But he is well, that because bad. I think you don't know somebody intimately, and you people know Putin intimately, even within his own country. His advisors are kept at arm's length a lot of times, too. So you use what you do know, uh, and then you probably impose on it, rightly or wrongly, your understandings of what a rational person would do, because nobody had any inclination that he was irrational. Certainly hadn't been his conduct. He had always been a very calculated uh, individual looking out to protect his own regime and to protect his country in a heightened sense uh, that I think people put that on as, that, well, here's a guy that we don't like what he does. We don't think he's a good guy, but he has a son, shown such signs of irrationality that he would ratchet it uh, to an extreme level. And you can't read people's minds, but now we're seeing that whatever may have transpired, particularly in the last couple of years, has put him in the position where he's willing to do it and doing it. John Tierney, Executive Director, the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, former Massachusetts Congressman, was on the House Intelligence Committee. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.